Today on Ag News Daily. WCMA has been around uh, as an association since the 1890s. Uh, so it's, it's a very long running organization and uh, they have been running some sort of contest uh, since early on in the association's history. Good afternoon and welcome to a Friday installment of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr here joined with Delaney Howell. And, you know, Delaney, we were talking yesterday, of course, about Russia and Ukraine and crossing our fingers that hopefully we'd have some different news to talk about today. But unfortunately, pretty much all my news stories are talking about Ukraine and Russia. But one story that really caught my eye today was about the Kiev mayor. He is a heavyweight Hall of Fame boxer. His name's Vitaly Klitschkow. I don't think I'm saying that last name completely correct, but he intends to fight for Ukraine alongside his brother, who's also a heavyweight boxer, who is now a part of the Ukraine military. But I thought it was pretty interesting that we're seeing this political figure really going to war for his country. I say going to war, maybe not calling it a war yet. Don't really know what is uh, going on there, but fighting alongside his brother. That's a good question. Sorry, I'm going to pick up on the war comment because I know in the United States, it has to be an act of war declared by, I believe the president and the con- and Congress both have to sign off on it, but I'm not entirely sure what that looks like for other countries or how they classify it as a war or just conflict or trade tensions or whatnot. So that's an interesting point you bring there, Ashton. But yeah, a lot of the news headlines today, obviously still focusing on what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, including what's going on in the commodity markets. They're continuing to pop lower and have some short-term fears here. But the general theme heading into the weekend is to take profits on the move that occurred through Thursday of this week. And we're seeing a lot of funds liquidate those long positions, a little nervous, of course, Um, But stocks have started to reverse their big losses this week, while commodities have headed in the opposite direction. So we're seeing some money move around, rotated out of stocks into commodities earlier in the week. And now we're seeing the funds switch those positions and money flows going in the opposite directions. So that's certainly weighing into the commodity markets today from that perspective, Ashton. But Just a lot of headlines still coming out about what all of this means for the world and also what it means, of course, for agriculture specifically. Um, It's interesting. A lot of folks are sharing, of course, their opinions on what that looks like, what that means moving forward, including some folks over at AgWeb or Farm Journal, I should say. Uh, Jim Wiesmeyer, who's the Washington policy analyst for Farm Journal, had a lot to share about this issue across some different farm journal platforms, including Agritalk and agweb.com. And he is calling it a war of words between Russia and Ukraine and is saying now that this is actual war and has significant ramifications on the rest of the world, including the United States. And he said, really, there's major, a couple major implications For the United States, of course, stocks have been a big one, but crude oil has also been a big one that we're continuing to watch and the energy crisis that could be potentially looming just because they are such a big world player when it comes to a lot of those nat gas and energy sources. Um, Crude oil's soared to above $100 per barrel, as I mentioned, I think earlier this week. So just a lot of ramifications that maybe people knew could or would happen, but 
are now coming to light? Well, you know, Delaney, we continue to talk about commodity trading and what's really going on in the markets here. And this next piece of news, Bloomberg reports, is the first confirmed instance of physical damage related to commodity trading. According to Bloomberg, there was a Cargill chartered ship sailing in Ukrainian waters that was caught in an attack in the Black Sea. It was reported that the vessel is currently sailing south to Romanian waters to receive some assistance, but the vessel was empty. I mean, they had crew and things of that nature, but it sounds like there wasn't anything, um, you know, highly important on the vessel. Um, so it was really just the boat and the crew, but the crew was all safe and accounted for luckily. But I think it's important to note that the war zone means Insurers have raised the costs of providing cover for merchant ships going through the Black Sea, which is adding to increased rates to transport goods through the region for vessels still willing to sail. But I'm not sure that we're going to see too many people that are willing to sail through these waters right now, Delaney. Yeah, and you absolutely wouldn't want to, honestly, in my opinion. I mean, unless you absolutely have to. But yeah, I saw that that story as well. I don't know if you've seen this map, Ashton. It's also been circulating on social media. It's of airplane flights or cargo ship flights. And it's interesting how all of the planes, I think both commercial and non-commercial are, are like all diverting around Ukraine. And it's weird to see it, how it's just this big hole in this map of these different flight paths that have been happening since this is all escalated. It's, it's crazy to see it. You know, I haven't seen that, Delaney, but I mean, I'm I'm not really surprised about this. I mean, I've seen similar maps to when there was conflict in the Middle East and people were avoiding that area. So not really surprised that they're trying to avoid airtime going over Ukraine. No, and honestly, I, I'm going to have to brush up on my political understandings, geopolitical understandings. But, you know, I think in the United States, they close that air traffic down. I would assume they're doing something similar in Ukraine where they're not even allowing flights over top. But I don't know that for sure. That's just my assumption. But as we're looking ahead here, China is going to be at a United Nations National Security Council to talk about this whole issue in an upcoming vote to see how they side and what needs to be done next. You know, do we need to put more sanctions on worldwide? What measures need to get put in place to hold Russia accountable? And so a lot of folks are going to be watching closely. A lot of analysts, policy and markets both said they're going to be watching China closely to see what China's decision is during an upcoming vote at this UNN meeting. And Wiesmeyer said that if they vote in favor of Russia, that's one thing. Most people are expecting that to happen. But if Russia abstains from voting, that tells you that they're actually a little more cautious about this development than most people think right now. So we kind of have some interesting sides to this that could break out here soon. But really, Wiesmeyer says that the only way to really go after Russia right now is to attack their financial system, of all things. And um, I asked, actually just listened to a podcast on this the other day, Ashton, but all, almost all of the country's biggest banking systems or global leaders use a system called SWIFT. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of this banking system, Ash, and it's actually really interesting, but all a lot of financial institutions use SWIFT to move money around the world. And a lot of banks will hold money on behalf of other banks. Uh, you know, like the U.S. has money in lots of other countries to help with security and other things. But um, Wiesmeyer is saying that the only way really to help get this attacked from the inside is to go through SWIFT and shut it down and, and not allow Russia to use this system to continue to buy, sell, trade, hold money for other people, et cetera. So it's, it's an interesting, like I said, just a lot of different ramifications that are starting to come to light as we're starting to watch this thing unfold. Well, and I think that we're talking more and more here about different people being affected, different countries being affected. And India is starting to have a couple more headlines on how they're hurting really from this conflict. Brazil's soy oil exports are expected to jump here in 2022, driven by demand from India, which is the world's biggest importer that is facing some issues to source vegetable oils from Ukraine, Russia, and Indonesia. Sunflower oil shipments from the Black Sea region to India are stuck, and new purchases have stalled after ports suspended operations following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So India is feeling insecure regarding its traditional trade partners and is trying to increase use of soy oil amid the conflict in Ukraine and problems with palm oil supplies from Indonesia. So it looks like Brazil is really stepping in here for India. It does sound like that as well. And that's really the the thing that we're going to watch here. I was having a good conversation actually last night with Darren Newsom. Of course, we have on the podcast pretty frequently, but Darren and I talk a lot about how prices are moving both at a national level and also at a basis level. And we just got into an interesting discussion last night, Ashton, about how volatile these markets are right now and how this creates such a fluctuation in global supply and demand on a lot of fronts that we really haven't seen play out yet. But just like Brazil stepping in for India, we're going to have to see that at some point if Ukraine completely shuts their borders, can't get crops harvested, uh, it's going to be a big domino effect. And I think we're going to see that happen. We're going to see a lot of countries needing to do business with maybe new businesses, new countries. So. There's a lot in flux right now. Well, Delaney, much like our conversation yesterday, I do have one piece of news that is not related to Russia or Ukraine. So is there anything else that you want to talk about concerning Russia and Ukraine before we move on here? No, I also have one non-Russia related piece of news. So uh, why don't you kick your piece off first, Ashton? Yeah, so this piece of news is coming from the USDA, and it was announcement yesterday that we kind of missed due to all of the really intense headlines that we were seeing. But Secretary Bill Sachs said that the agency is making up to $215 million available in grants and other support to expand meat and poultry processing options, strengthen the food supply chain, and create jobs and economic opportunities here in rural areas. And this is just one of the actions that we've really seen from the USDA trying to expand processing capacity and increase competition here. But I will say that Vilsack was quoted as saying, for far too long, ranchers and processors have seen the value and the opportunities they work so hard to create move away from the rural communities where they live and operate. 
The funding we're announcing today will ultimately help us give farmers and ranchers a fair shake and strengthen supply chains while developing options to deliver food processed closer to home for families. So these grants, this money is going to be spread out across a couple of different things, which you can read about online. I won't go into it too much since it is a hefty $215 million, but just an interesting piece of news today that I was trying to find something that we didn't have to end on Russia, Ukraine, but this is just what I had. I have one as well. And I think this is interesting. It's an Ag Weather Forum update looking at spring precipitation because as a lot of weather folks, meteorologists and so forth are suggesting we're actually kind of maybe moving out of a La Nina pattern, which I've talked with Eric Snodgrass about. It does take a long time to fully move out of a pattern and into another. But it's interesting because a lot of the country, as we know, is in severe drought. But as you look up north in the Red Red River Valley area, there's actually quite a bit more precipitation than normal that's happened over the last 90 days. So going back to late November 2021 amounts to about 150 to 250 percent of the average. So in other words, 50 to 150 percent greater than average rainfall has actually occurred in the Red River Valley area. And if you'll think back to 2019, Ashton, I think you were on the podcast. Uh, You were not on the podcast yet, but you were in the works. Um, That time of year was a really wet year. We had severe flooding that started up north and worked its way down into Iowa, Nebraska, basically along uh, I-29. I had to think about that for a second. Uh, We saw a lot of flooding occur. And so meteorologists are warning that there is actually a very high risk of a major flooding starting in the Fargo-Moorhead area and potentially flowing down through the Red River area, which, of course, will then affect folks south of that area. So it's very interesting how quickly the weather can change here from going into a hot and dry summer to now maybe another flooding year in in ahead of us here. So who knows for sure? Well, Delaney, that is really all the news that you and I both have to talk about today. So how about we hop into the markets? Let's do it. Let's rip this bandaid off because it was an ugly day today. And again, in a lot of conversations that I've been having with analysts and brokers, I've been picking their brains a little bit more than normal. Talk to three yesterday alone about what these implications are. I think it's too soon to tell, but ultimately a lot of them are saying the same thing. They still think this is just a short-term reaction in the markets, especially on the grain side of things to this Ukraine, uh, Russia-Ukraine problem. Long-term, still pretty bullish out there, although that can change pretty quickly and that's what they're going to be watching. But overall, they're feeling right now this is just a short-term dip in the markets. And we certainly saw that short-term dip get even uglier today. March corn down 35.5 cents to close at 6.59.5. The Deese down 25 cents to close at 5.79 and three quarters. Soybeans had an extra ugly day today as the March contract shed 71 and a quarter cents to close at 15.90 and a quarter. November new crop beans down 36 and a half cents to close at 14.15. Wheat gave up most of this week's losses as the Chicago March contract closed 83 cents lower, settling at 8.43. The May down 75 cents to close at 8.59 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets today, we saw some mixed trade in the cattle complex as live cattle finished lower, feeder cattle finished higher. 
April live cattle today down 37 and a half cents to close at 141.92. The June down 30 to close at a buck 38. And feeder cattle, as I mentioned there, had a little green today, a little pop up on this Friday afternoon. March contract added 92 and a half cents to close at 160.02.5. The April up 95 cents to close at 164.75. Lean hogs had an ugly day again today as the April contract shed $1.85 to close at 103.67. The May down 230. Settling Friday afternoon out at 107.82 and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up with the class three dairy milk futures. The March contract today shed 59 cents to close at 21.92. The April down 76 cents to close at 22.47. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to today's conversation for today's interview. Well, today is a little bit more of an uplifting interview that we have here with Grace Atherton, who is the communications director for the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association. And Grace, I'm excited to chat with you here today. I'm a big cheese lover, even though I'm not a Wisconsinite. I don't know what you call people from Wisconsin. (laughs) You got it. You got it. (laughs) Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Ashton. So Grace, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your history in uh, Wisconsin agriculture, dairy, cheese making, what have you, and really how you got to this position. Sure. So I uh, started out my career actually working in the Wisconsin State Legislature. Um, I worked for a state representative who represented uh, the Baraboo area, which is a rural uh, part of South Central Wisconsin. And his district in particular included a lot of uh, rural um, landscape. And while I worked for him, I just became fascinated in agriculture and and farming. I didn't grow up on a farm. I have no formal background at all in agriculture myself. My family isn't really from the agriculture world. Um, But I just became so fascinated because this legislator that I worked for had grown up on a farm and came from a farm family for for a few generations. And uh, I I just became so interested in all that goes into making uh, food for the world, really. And so that led me eventually to the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade and Consumer Protection uh, as the communications director there for about two and a half years. And There, I felt like I really got to dive into the huge, wide world of agriculture, particularly in Wisconsin, uh, but also where it relates to, you know, our our trade internationally and and interaction with other states, too. And then uh, about seven or eight months ago, the opportunity came up for me to uh, really dive into cheese and dairy processing with uh, WCMA. So I I made the leap and uh, the rest, I guess, as they say, is history. Well, I am very excited to talk a little bit more about history here of the World Championship Cheese Contest, which is coming up here. And uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the contest itself, but also really how it's developed over the years, because this is something that's been around since 1957. So can you indulge me in that? Yeah, so WCMA has been around uh, as an association since the 1890s, uh, so it's it's a very long-running organization, and uh, they have been running some sort of contest uh, since early on 
in the association's history. And as you mentioned, in 1957, uh, they decided to invite a few other countries. I believe England, Ireland, and Canada were among the first ones. The association decided, let's open this up a little more and, and allow some other countries to participate. And back then, it was really focused on cheddar. It was really just a cheddar competition. Um, and then in the 60s, it became more of an all-cheese contest, and they opened it up even further uh, and since then, really every even numbered year, uh, WCMA has hosted this world championship cheese contest. In the odd numbered years, we host the U.S. championship cheese contest as well. And it really just keeps growing um, as far as, as number of entries, number of classes we offer, uh, types of products. We really try to be responsive in this competition to what's happening in the industry and what uh, different types of offerings are, are being developed because cheesemakers, dairy processors, they're always coming up with something new. So we really try to adapt to that. Well, Grace, I want to know how you become a judge for this because <laughs> I would love to put myself up for a nomination. <laughs> I would too, to be honest. I'm a cheese lover myself and uh, it sadly for us, it is not enough to just be a cheese lover. Uh, this team of judges that we have this year, we have about 50 judges from all over the world. Uh, they come from multiple countries and they are really highly respected experts in the dairy processing industry, in the cheese industry. So these are folks that, uh, might come from careers as dairy science professors, researchers, uh, cheese buyers for different companies in the industry. Um, often they are cheese graters, that's graters with a D, not a T, uh, meaning that they, they look at cheese all day long and evaluate it on a, a really specific technical basis and decide what grade it should be labeled. So these are really highly experienced folks that we're bringing in for this world championship cheese contest. And they are going into this with extremely technical specifications that they're looking for. Um, every cheese starts at a hundred points. So they all sort of start on an even playing field. We, uh, unless it's unavoidable as it is with certain types of cheeses, we don't have any, any labeling on the package when the cheese gets in front of the judge. They're not evaluating marketing or things like that. It really is focused all on the cheese itself as it's sitting there in front of them. And they're looking at things like flavor, like you would expect, and appearance, but they're also looking for things like body and texture, um, salt. Is it too salty? Could it use a little bit more? color, finish, all of these really detailed specifications that uh, the average consumer, you know, when you and I go to the grocery store, I, I'm pretty discerning, but I'm not picking up every piece of cheese to see what its salt content is like. But these folks have the expertise and that's really as, as minute as they get in their evaluations. They take off, you know, a tenth of a point here, a tenth of a point there, so they can provide really really exact technical feedback to the cheesemaker to say, here's how you can tweak your process to make this even better. 
So you mentioned, I believe it was courses or classes there earlier. So what exactly are you talking about there? What can we expect from, you know, this contest, this three-day event that you guys are having? Yeah, so we have a, a total this year of 141 classes um, that that cheesemakers can enter products in. Uh, and beyond cheese, we also have classes for butter products, yogurt products, whey, uh, so dry dairy ingredients are also allowed to enter in the contest. So it's a wide variety of processed uh, dairy products. And each year we adjust those classes and categories based on what we're hearing from industry. A good example is this year's uh, cheese curd classes that are making their first official debut at the World Contest. Two years ago, those were sort of part of another class. People could enter cheese curds, but they would be part of what we call the natural snack class. Uh, and we noticed two, two years ago that there were quite a few cheese curd entries being submitted into that grouping and decided maybe we should break that out and give it its own, its own class, its own category. Uh, so we've done that this year. We also have a new one this year that'll be fun to watch that is for wine and spirits washed rind cheeses. So these are cheeses where the rind has been washed, just like it sounds, in some sort of wine or beer or spirit. So we try to keep those classes really responsive to, to what the industry is seeing. Well, Grace, I personally am excited to see what comes of this. If any of our listeners want to follow along with the contest and see what's going on there as you guys pick a winner, where can they find you guys at online? We are on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. at a World Championship Cheese Contest. And we will be live streaming the big announcement of the top 20 cheeses in the world, as well as the 2022 world champion. Uh, that'll be live streamed on Thursday, March 3rd at 2 p.m. Central at worldchampioncheese.org. Awesome. Well, Grace, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Glad for the opportunity. Thanks again there to Grace for coming on and chatting with us about the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association and their World Championship Cheese Contest that's going on next week, March 1st through the 3rd. Like Grace mentioned there, some of that is going to be live streamed so you can tune in. But folks, don't forget to tune into the Act News Daily Podcast. We're always having interesting conversations here and following up on world news. So do stay tuned in at agnewsdaily.com. With that, I'm going to let the people go.